that's how I, I had a feeling of fitting in because I could, I could talk about those things. I didn't have any. I wasn't a theorist uh, with my work. I just was following the work, and you know, the paintings looked like they were squares. So I started making squares, and then the squares became volumes and I, with corners, and I started playing with the corners, and then one corner leads to another corner, and pretty soon, uh, you know, 60 years has gone by, and I'm still making corners, and so if I haven't learned how yet, I'm not, I think it might be too late. Hi, I'm Dan Rubenstein, and this is The Grand Tourist. I've been a design journalist for nearly 20 years, and this is my personalized guided tour through the worlds of fashion, art, architecture, food, and travel, all the elements of a well-lived life. My guest today is an American art legend who sprang forth from the LA art scene in the 1960s alongside compatriots Robert Irwin, Ken Price, and Ed Ruscha, Larry Bell. Today, in his early 80s, he continues to make his ultra-cool sculptures from his studios in Venice, California, and Taos, New Mexico, where he spent a better part of the pandemic. Larry was originally from Chicago before going to school in LA, where he learned to become an artist at a time of cultural upheaval. What I find most fascinating about him, however, is his old-school nonchalance about his groundbreaking work. When asked by Vanity Fair to define what he does, he said, quote, You can't see anything if there's no light, and you need space to put it down. So there's no need to get all fancy about it. If you've seen one kind of his work, it's probably the glass cubes he's been making for decades using industrial machinery, specifically a vacuum deposition chamber, which Bell acquired in the late 60s. More on that later. He also uses similar techniques to create 2D and 3D works that look like tricks of light captured in time. His latest show, Up Now in Los Angeles at the Mega Gallery, Hauser & Wirth until October 2nd, explores a personal side of his work, mostly by association. In the show, he shares the gallery with his late friend and former roommate and studio mate, sculptor John Chamberlain. The pair were friends for years, and Bell introduced Chamberlain to light and space artists like Robert Irwin and John McCracken. It's the first show to explore this personal and creative relationship, always seen with his signature fedora hat on as he wore during our interview. I wanted to ask Larry about his life growing up in a Jewish family in Chicago, his struggles as a student, what Chamberlain was like as a buddy, and what the storied art scene of the 1960s was really like. And I kind of wanted to start uh, uh, from the beginning of your life. And you were born in Chicago, but you you grew up in L.A. And I'm kind of wondering, like, what age were you when you when you made that move? And uh, what was that like as a young man growing up in L.A.? Oh, well, my parents moved from Chicago to Los Angeles when I was five. Dad pulled a house trailer with a 1940 Plymouth. That was 1945. And, and right after the war ended, he went into the insurance business in out in the San Fernando Valley. The, the company that he worked for in Chicago liked him, when he, but he was obliged to move because my brother had bad asthma as a little kid. And so they wanted him out of that, that atmosphere and to a drier climate. <laughs> Where in LA did you did you grow up? Where what neighborhood? Sherman Oaks. And uh, would you describe it as a as a happy childhood out there in LA and kind of in the late forties? And well, yeah, I guess so. I, I as a kid, I seemed to be pretty self sufficient. I, I, nobody's ever asked me that question before, so I, I, I'm 
I'm pulling, I'm trying to pull an answer, but I can't, don't, I guess I was happy. And, uh, I mean, in some interviews, you know, you've, you mentioned with a bit of humor, you know, that you were, uh, you know, you're just a Jewish kid from uh, Los Angeles and, uh, were your, were your parents religious? Were your, were you kind of, you know, conservative, uh, household? Yeah, they, they were, they were. I was born with a hearing loss that wasn't detected until I was in my 40s. And so a lot of things about being a Jew and, and ha- go, as a kid growing up, going to Hebrew school and all that in preparation for something called being bar mitzvahed, pretty much escaped me because I couldn't understand. I didn't, I didn't hear what, I couldn't make any sense out of what any of it was. So I found myself being punished for not paying attention quite a bit. But in fact, it was, uh, I had a, a severe loss in my hearing that was not detected yet. Uh, and, uh, so a lot of things went, went right over my head. So I'm wondering if your undiagnosed hearing loss perhaps made you a little bit introspective or even push you to become an artist. Probably. I, I really didn't know what art was. In high school, I liked to draw cartoons and things like that. And sometimes I did my homework in the form of a comic book. I remember this one teacher I had when I was in high school. He, he gave me really good grades because I I did, did something that nobody do, did, and and, uh, and uh, he he encouraged it. Ultimately, after I graduated from high school, I didn't really. Ha- I had terrible grades and and no real credits to get into any kind of university, or uh, I could get into a junior college out there, which I I wasn't that interested in. But I decided that some kind of professional school, like an art school, maybe I could get a job working for Walt Disney if I learned how to be an animator. And so that's the route I took. Um, I went to a place called Chouinard Art Institute. The school was financed a good deal by Disney because he got a lot of his designers and animators from the school. And that became CalArts later, correct? Yes. Okay. Yes. And what did you, you, you were, you were sort of surrounded by an incredible generation of people and, and people that you learned from. Boy, is that the truth? And what was yeah. that like? I mean, what was the kind of the vibe? I mean, this was what would, I would say late fifties, uh, at the time. And what was the, you know, this wasn't the, the sixties quite yet. So what was that? What was an art school like in, uh, in well, there was a lot of guys, a lot of guys that were there on the, from vets from the, Korean War that were there on the GI Bill, and and um, uh, it was interesting. I've, I've it was the first time I I went to a school that had uh, Asian people or African American people. It, it was a, a pretty white area where I grew up, uh, so school was a real education meeting. Getting to know people, uh, some of my best friends at art school were black. But the thing that attracted us, I think, to each other as friends was a similar sense of humor. If you didn't have a sense of humor, you pretty much had to be by yourself because everybody was interested in a good laugh, and that was part of the deal. 
you you met Robert Irwin then was he yeah. was he a teacher of yours yeah, or yeah it was uh, interestingly i just spoke to him on the drive to where we are today I, <laughs> do you remember meeting robert irwin well he was my one of my teachers yeah was he strict no he was really uh, charismatic he was uh, funny and a great guy and lots of energy and he was also teaching himself about art history and things cuz he'd walk around looking at the students work but he had a book he carried a, a a paperback about art with him and he was he was reading it while he was looking at people's work and uh it was very interesting and he would sometimes talk about some of the things he was reading about that was a, an, an expansion on the classroom and and your early works your sort of um your more uh abstract works before you sort of delved into a three-dimensional world what were those like were they were they were you kind of doing that that same work in school and, and that developed as you kind of graduated and went out into the world or how did that those early pieces sort of you know how did you gel in with that kind of technique man you're asking me to remember things that <laughs> <laughs> a lifetime ago well, I, there was the art school was a very interesting place, and, and uh, aside from the diversity of the racial blend, uh, the, uh, the, there was a lot of politics that were hashed out between people in the art school that thought that you you had to learn how to draw the figure before you could paint abstract pictures. Then there were people that thought you didn't have to know how to draw the figure to paint abstract pictures. And so there was a, a conflict between more conservative teachers and less conservative teachers, of, of which Irwin was definitely a less conservative teacher. And one of the teachers uh, was a fellow named Herbert Jepson. He taught drawing, and he was kind of revered as a as a teacher, uh, to get into one of his drawing classes meant something that you had something special going for you because it was not easy to get into his classes. When you walked into his classroom, the walls were covered with drawings of from life, uh, models that uh, had a certain ca kind of character to the drawings. All all everybody's work had a uh, an, uh, had a similar look. Now, that, so this, there might have been a hundred students work on the walls, but all of it looked like it was done by one person. And, and uh, the instructor, Jepson, talked about drawing in a way that suggested not that he was interested in the figure, which is what all the drawings around the wall were, but in some kind of a sense that drawing had a certain energy that was released uh, w when you when you drew and it had nothing to do with the figure and and in my interpretation of what he was saying was that any kind of image that you did in the style of drawing met those inner those those the criteria that he was describing in, in the in a metaphysical sense it wasn't the figure that was metaphysical it was the act of drawing that was metaphysical and uh, and had nothing to do with the figure and so i started drawing squares based on what i interpreted what he's doing and my opinion was that everybody in the classroom that was doing drawings like the 
stuff pinned up on the wall was missing the point of what he was talking about. He 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 would walk around the room and and stop at different people's little desks where they were they were working and uh, show them a demonstration of how to draw that hand or something like that. Or his his physical thing was very much about the figure, and uh, but things he talked about did not have anything to do with the figure, and so. I just took the position that what he was talking about was simply the act of making a drawing. And so I started doing these squares. Finally, he, after, a, I don't know, a month or so of drawing, doing this work, uh, he stopped and asked me what I was doing. He had ignored me completely. Uh, um, but he, and, I, and I told him what, what I thought. I thought that his, his messages about the, the energy and drawing had nothing to do with the figure and that everybody was drawing the figure because of all of the painting, all of the drawings that were surrounding them around the room. And so everybody's work looked like the, the kind of drawing that we're on, and I'm drawing squares. Okay, so um, anyways, I, 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 you know, I said to him, I said, everybody seems to be confused. What, what you're, what you're talking about has nothing to do with this kind of drawing, and has to do with something else. And I, he suggested that um, the school had a uh, aesthetic advisor. I think is what he said. That that my my concept of what was going on in the classroom was very interesting to him, and I should talk to this guy about that. And so I went and set up an appointment with this aesthetic advisor. Anyways, I've had, I don't know, four or five sessions with the guy at different after a per, over a period of, you know, several weeks. And uh, it was interesting. I, and what was developing out of the conversation was uh, making me feel real good. And uh, I had a roommate. I came home one day. I was feeling particularly good. And uh, he said, what are you so happy about? And I told him, well, I've been talking to this guy. And my roommate said, what are you talking to him about? And I said, well, Jepson sent me to see the guy. You know, he's sort of an aesthetic advisor or something like that. And my roommate says to me, you're crazy. He says, the school hired that guy to weed out the weirdo. <laughs> was he a shrink? Was he a psychologist? Like a psychologist or a psychiatrist? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, something like that. And and I, you know, I my my bubble just completely burst that um, uh, I was being examined because my <laughs> because of my interpretation of what the teachers were saying. And and so maybe your your squares kind of set off some red flags with them, and they kind of thought that maybe you should talk to somebody. Well, I don't know. Well, yeah, whatever. I just uh, I just went to my locker and packed it in and left school and quit. Oh gosh. And I, I was I was really bummed bummed about it and and Irwin Bob Irwin said to me uh uh listen, don't let this get you down. I said, this is a professional school. You paid to come here. You can go off and get yourself a studio and see what it's like doing your painting on your own, see what that world is all about. You can always come back to school. That was very encouraging to me. Uh, so I, that's exactly what I did, except I never went back to school. I just, uh, so I was, had about 
a little less than two years under my belt in, in art school. And I went into the studio and I, I found myself there. And do you, do you, do you remember the, the first time that, you know, a gallerist or a, a critic or somebody saw one of your volumes? Like, what was there? What was that early reaction like? I'm sure they must have asked you, you know, questions and things like that. Yeah, I don't remember. Uh, I, I I don't remember. Mm -hmm. My dialogue was mostly was just my compatriots, and uh, uh, they were very encouraging. About that's all I needed was my friends to tell me that to to include me in their social scene because they liked me and they liked what I did, and that was good enough for me. And uh, all of the artists that were teachers at the school were employed by the school to teach and that's uh so they i had a different kind of experience with job interactions i got fired from every job i ever had and i decided that the only future for me was to stay unemployed and um and i'm i'm celebrating my 62nd anniversary of unemployment as far as I my feelings are. Before we return to Larry, a word from our sponsor, Gloucester. At Gloucester, they open the doors to beautiful exteriors by taking the long view and using the very best materials and techniques available. Gloucester's aim is to deliver impeccable furniture and countless special outdoor moments. Renowned for their use of fine teak, contemporary materials, and award-winning designs, the same passion, pride, and conviction that launched the Gloucester brand in 1970 continues to fuel the business. Today, trade studios and premium retail partners represent the brand and support their clients wherever they're found. And Gloucester's trade studios are in the heart of internationally recognized design districts, New York, LA, Chicago, Dakota, Florida. And the brand also collaborates with the very best retail names throughout the country. Explore the Gloucester brand online, find your nearest Gloucester vendor, view products, sign up to the newsletter, and use a 3D planner to dream up your perfect outdoor space at Gloucester.com. Or follow at Gloucester Furniture on Instagram or Pinterest for regular updates and stunning imagery from the brand's latest collections. Gloucester Furniture, wherever you find them, you won't be disappointed. For the 2017 Whitney Biennial, Larry Bell created a series of six large red glass cubes with smaller cubes nested inside. Situated on the roof of the New York Museum, the depth of the color red shifted from dark to light. While it's easy to see why design lovers are taken by his work, Frank Gehry is a longtime fan, he hates the idea of being a designer. I wanted to delve into his practice that created these incredible glass works, the material studies that make them a reality, and what it all means to him. So your first glass cubes were in the early 60s, um, where you kind of leapt from a 2D world to a 3D world. How did that happen? Well, I was doing, uh, making drawings uh, or two-dimensional wall-hanging things that were diagrams, flat diagrams of a three-dimensional cube. And I finally got to the end of the rope with that because I didn't see any. The only place left to go was to leave the two dimensions and start making three-dimensional versions of what I'm painting. And um, all of a sudden, I became a sculptor. And uh, I didn't really realize that that was the, <laughs> the decision I had made. I just started making these 
three-dimensional boxes with a front and a back, and you looked into them and so on. And and one thing led to another, and finally they, they evolved into symmetrical cubes. Uh, the earliest ones were tessera-shaped volumes or, uh, or just a rectangular uh, or square shapes with a front and back and sides. Eventually, I decided that to make all the sides the same and see how it presented a volume. And that's sort of what I'm still doing, things like that. You know, I mean, you must have been making these volumes for for a few years before you sort of had to create your own machinery to to create them, that these these kinds of industrial machines that you're still using today in your studio, to, or is that how did that how did you kind of find yourself into that? Because that must be difficult. I can tell you exactly. The I had my, my I was invited to do a, a show at the Pace Gallery in New York through uh, through the good offices of Irving Blum and Walter Hopps, uh, recommending uh, me to somebody. At, at uh, the Pace Gallery, and and uh, they set up a show, and I, and I made a series of cubes. The, the the gallery had fronted some money to do these pieces, and so w- I did the work, and then we sent the work off to New York, and several pieces broke in transit. Tragedy for me, but but there was a the possibility of repairing them before the show opened. And Pace pulled out a big wad of money and said, "Go fix them if you can." And and so I located the people that did this plating process in New York, and I found a glass guy who could cut the glass and and bevel the edges and so on, so it would make a, a cube assembly. And and uh, we repaired the work, and it cost. The gallery put out a lot of money to get these things done. I was very pleased that we got it done. The the fellow who did the coatings on the glass said, it's crazy to spend this kind of money on, like, what what I have to charge you to do this. Uh, And I can imagine how much the guy who was doing it for you in Los Angeles charged. You should get the equipment and do it yourself. Well, I had no idea about uh, I wasn't very skilled hand, hands-on with tools. or I didn't know that much about anything. And uh, he said, I, was, I have a piece of equipment that might work for you. And he showed me this thing. And he says, I'll show you how to do it. Well, the show was successful. And Pace wanted me to stay around New York. And so I mentioned to them that this, this piece of equipment was available. and uh, But I'd need a studio and all of that if I wanted to stay there and they helped and and so i got a little studio on east 9th street and um set up this device which i had no idea what it was and uh, one winter stormy day he the guy who sold it to me shows up this is maybe two weeks after it was installed and he had said he would teach me how to use this thing and so i asked him when i got my first lesson and he says right now and he reached into to his fur overcoat and pulls out a book called Vacuum Deposition of Thin Films, pushes it into my stomach and says, you start on page one. And he walked out. And uh, there I was with this thing that looked like a giant cigarette lighter and, uh, and, and a book. How much was it? Was it expensive at the time? It was, I think, 
it was about three thousand dollars. That was a fair amount of money back then. And uh, but they had sold the the works. They had sold the cubes that we had made in California. I don't remember if we even made any money on it after the gallery took their slice and what it costs, and then you know, uh, but. But they were gracious enough to give me, pay me a certain amount of money every month so I could carry on with my studies, and, and uh, it, it worked great. But then I, I uh, two things happened. One was the blackout of 66, and the other was the blizzard of 66, which convinced me I am not a New Yorker. I wanted to get back to Venice Beach and where I came from and, and be around my friends and so on. Although I had made a lot of good friends in New York in that time I was there. People call you a pioneer in perceptual art. Do you like that label or do you even think that your work fits in with that movement? I don't think I can. I think all artwork is a kind of a, a form of energy. I'm not sure that uh, the objects that people make are, are necessarily art. I think they're the evidence of a of an activity at a particular time, but whether they're art or not, I'm not so sure. Because I, one thing that John once said to me is that art is a teacher, and um, suggesting that well, just all the things that that suggests is uh, uh, the power of the statement, and I, I totally agree with him. What has your art taught you? in your life? Everything I know. Hmm. How so? Um, everything I know. I, I'm self-taught in my scene. And, you know, I learned how to run the equipment and it did delivered the goods for me and what I w bought it for. And I managed to keep advancing the, the studies in such a way that we're doing new things with the old, with the techniques that we, and it's all, it all, I follow the work because the work is the teacher. And speaking of this process with this machine, with this sort of, you know, technique using the film on, on glass, how many volumes do you think you've you've created since that guy gave you that manual all those day, all those years ago? At least a thousand t attempts. Most of them failed. Out of that, maybe ten percent of what I actually finished. I mean, I I would throw things away well before. I put too much calories into them that uh, if it looked like it was going the wrong way and there was, or I'd set it aside. That's something I've done many times is put work away to finish another time because I, I couldn't, for some reason or another, I couldn't resolve it. And a um, few years later, I might discover it again and, and, and know just what to do to make the difference. And, and so, and again, the thing that taught me what was missing was the work itself and and that time between the conception of the work and when I finally laid hands on it the second time is, is the the thought of what I was doing matured enough that I, I could just proceed with it spontaneously and and um, and that's the way I like to work even though the pieces don't look like they're very spontaneous they in fact uh, a lot of different possibilities within the format that I work with uh, that are uh, intuitive decisions based on the factor of the number of possible decisions. And, and um, 
you just have to make it. You have to. If you want to finish something, you got to make a call on it and finish it, and and then you can step back and look at it. And that's what I did. It either works or it doesn't work, or it could work better, or maybe it'll look better in another year or whatever. You know, the the production in answer to your question is about ten percent of the sculptures that I attempted to make came out successfully enough for me to show them somewhere and possibly sell them. Larry Bell and John Chamberlain met at a gallery in Los Angeles and became fast friends. Both artists explored ideas of process and materiality, and for a while, their works overlapped in a way. In the show at Hauser & Wirth, Larry's glass cubes sit next to a series of John Chamberlain sculptures that Larry helped to create that looks as if the rigid geometric forms of Larry Bell were put into a microwave and melted into a shiny, iridescent mass. With these works from the early 70s that seem so contemporary today, I wanted to ask Larry why he thinks he and John got along so well, what hanging out with him was like, and what he would ask John today if he could talk to him one more time. Honey, this show is a work of John Chamberlain and myself. I didn't meet Chamberlain uh, in New York, I met him in Los Angeles. He, he he and a fellow named Neil Williams, another artist, came out together and came to an opening at uh, the Ferris Gallery of the sculptor Ken Price. And um, that's where I first met John, was at the Ferris Gallery. They Both he and Neil became very close friends. And when I would go to New York l- later on, I mean, th- they were the first two people I would see. And what was John Chamberlain, Chamberlain like? What was he like as a friend? Funny, very funny, yeah. And he knew how to drink, and he knew he had all kinds of great stories. And he, he had a pig tattooed on one foot and a chicken on the other foot. You know, he'd been in the army or the military, and I don't know. He was a, he was about 12 years or more older than me. He, he had been a, a hairdresser before he got into studio work. And did he ever give you a haircut? No. No, but he did He did cut a few people's hair that I know, but uh, never me. And, and your, this show now that uh, you're doing with, with John uh, Chamberlain's pieces, um, why do you think your work and his work sort of share this kind of kindred spirit? that they can be seen next to each other and make a kind of sense. <laughs> well, I don't, I wouldn't presume that they, to do that. I think, really? you know, that, yeah, okay. somebody else had to make that decision and the gallery did. And so, uh, I mean, I always wanted to do a show with John because we got along so well and it was so much fun being together. And, and th- th- there was no petty jealousies or fights about anything. You know, if he wanted to do something, I was right there with him. And if I wanted to do something, he was right there with me. And that was pretty much the way it was with all my friends. And John was such a special guy because his trip was totally uh, spontaneous and improvisational. He's probably the most important improvisational sculptor that, I, that I've ever witnessed. You know, I mean, watching that guy put things together was just amazing. And his, he had a very critical eye for what he was doing. Did he ever give you any advice or like come into the studio and kind of help you and well, he's, you know we, we'd sit and bullshit about things and you know and one of those great bullshit sessions we we're talking about what art was and he says art's a teacher and that that rang true 
to me and made so much sense that it's not so much an object as it is a something else, an energy force that uh, allows things to grow and and uh, and be created uh, without anything prejudicing it, other than the artist's own prejudice about how he does things. You know, so everything comes the flavor of who that person is. When someone sees your work with John side by side uh, in person, you know, they go and visit the exhibition. When they go home and they get in the car and they go home, what do you want to stick in their mind? What do you want them to understand about who you are as an artist? I don't know if I want them to think anything. Uh, I mean, I, what we're hopefully doing with this show is honestly putting out what we did together and showing other works that we were doing at the time of our collaboration and the collaboration works themselves and other visual anecdotes of of who we were and what you know john's we've got a big piece of john's foam rubber furniture uh, in the gallery and and i hope people flop on it and and meditate on what's around there because John hand cut those big blocks with a with an electric uh, knife that you use to cut roast beef really? with you know and and uh, if they come out with nothing more than the thought that those guys were having a real good time they'd be right and uh, uh, and I couldn't ask for any m more recognition than that Thank you to Larry Bell and Ben at Hauser & Wirth for making this episode happen. The editor of The Grand Tourist is Stan Hall. To keep this going, please follow me on Instagram at Dan Rubenstein to learn more. And sign up with your email for updates at thegrandtourist.net. And don't forget to follow The Grand Tourist on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. And leave us a rating or comment. Every little bit helps. Till next time, 